Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How you doing? Great. <laughs> um, Jim mentioned this. There's a couple things I want to agree with him on. Some things I want to... No, there's nothing I want to disagree about, but... A couple things. One, um, the, the hiring committee, hiring team, search committee, have been working really, really hard. So now that you know their names, if you happen to bump into any of them, you know, maybe you should set up a time to get coffee with them or something, like buy them a bagel or something. It's been a lot of work, and that's an intense week. And you all know how busy you are. Imagine taking five nights out of a week and and interviewing for several hours candidates. So whatever else you've got going in your life, if you have, I don't know, uh, friends, family, kids, anything, uh, every night of the week, basically, practically, that's a big commitment. And they've been doing a great job. And I also want to say that um, I'm on the committee and, or on the team, and I'm encouraged by who we've met so far. So I feel really encouraged about where things are going. And I think that as this plays out, I think everybody in this room is going to be very encouraged the way it goes as well. So thank you, Jim, too, who not only, you know, goes to all of these meetings, but has to basically plan them, too. So thank you. I got a question. Anyone ever heard of Saladin? Anybody? Saladin. He's a famous world leader from the past. Now, if you've never heard of him, don't feel bad. I'm like in the same camp with you. I never heard or learned about Saladin in my history classes or anything like that. I learned about Saladin from playing Civilization, <laughs> a computer game where at the very beginning you get to choose to be a leader uh, from actual history. And I noticed that Saladin was an option. So this happens to me. I... I kind of, I'm a kind of personality that can really get sucked into historical things sometimes. So a documentary about anything can be on TV, and I will get sucked in. I once watched a two-hour documentary on the hot dog. <laughs> so that's what I'm talking about, which I, and I enjoyed every minute of it, and I found out apparently the best hot dog in the world was about six blocks from where I was living at the time. Kind of a letdown when I had it, got to be honest. But I was like, oh, cool. I'm glad I watched the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, Saladin, who is this guy? I've got to read up on him. So, you know, Google, Wikipedia, just reading about uh, who he was because I knew he was a real person. And this is what I found out. Saladin was a Muslim sultan uh, ruling in Jerusalem during the period of the Crusades, so around the 1100s. Um, and he's famous for being the first leader to drive the Crusaders out of Jerusalem. And so with that background, you would think that the Crusaders would have despised him, right? Would have thought that he was evil. But the opposite was actually true. So because of the way he behaved in defeating the Crusaders, he offered them amnesty and safe passage back home. Uh, he was considered by Richard the Lionhearted, uh, king of England, to be a chivalrous knight. And then legends of him and his great generosity began to spread and be told. And one of those depictions holds particular significance for what we're going to talk about today because of the question it asks its audience to consider. 
And this, uh, this legend, I guess, uh, is told in the book Nathan the Wise. The book isn't about Saladin, but he's one of the characters in it, written by Gotthold Lessing. And in this story, Saladin, true to his reputation, hates the fact that people have to beg so much that he empties his treasury by being generous to the poor in Jerusalem. So Saladin, after all of this happens, he gives away all of his riches. He sends his treasurer, Al-Hafi, to borrow money from Nathan the, Rye, Nathan the Wise. So that's how Saladin's in Nathan's story. And when Al-Hafi arrives, he complains to Nathan about Saladin. He says this, It wouldn't be foolishness to mimic the gentleness of God who, without prejudice, spreads himself over good and evil and plain and desert and sunshine and rain and not always have God's full hand. Well, wouldn't it be arrogance? So he's saying it's not just foolishness to try and give or be as generous as God when you don't have his full hand. It's actually arrogant to think that you can and I think I'll have you on some level, I mean, it's not where we're going to land. You could probably guess that. Um, makes a good point. It does seem a little foolish and arrogant to think that we could or you could or I could give like God, given that we don't have the same resources that God has. Yet, this is exactly what the Christian scriptures encourage us to do. So, so far in this series... Uh, one key understanding that has surfaced again and again and again is that we're made in the image of God. And as such, when we reflect who God is, we experience what life is meant to be like. Energy comes into our life. Uh, the world gets bigger. We have more joy, peace, love in our lives when we reflect who God is. And so that is the foundation. We've looked at God as a generous God. And I have been arguing that in order to experience the good life or life like it's supposed to be, generosity is a part of who God is that we need to reflect as well. Otherwise, it's like cutting off one of our limbs or losing the sense of smell. It's, you lose part of what it means to be human and the ability to experience life in its fullest. So that's our baseline understanding. So today... We'll be examining how exactly we can do something that sounds impossible, which is give like God gives. Sounds impossible. And actually, the way we're going to do it is look at three things in the passage we're looking at today that all sound impossible. They sound like they contradict each other. But it's in these contradictions that we're going to find life. Because God doesn't work in the same ways that we do. Sometimes it's a paradox, it's a contradiction. But if we lean into those things, we can experience a different kind of life. That's what Jesus offers. That's the whole reason that I'm encouraging you to pursue faith and to pursue Jesus, because that's where you become the most human. You become the most, you begin to reflect your creator the most and you're filled with life. That's what we're hoping for. I want to give credit to Miroslav Volf for his book, Free of Charge. I got a lot of ideas from that book. It's worth reading. It's not a short read um, or the simplest, uh, but it's worth it. So before we move into our main passage, 
Let's go back to this question that Al Hafi poses. He says, can we really give like God if we don't have God's full hand, he put it. Well, I want to say off the bat, yes, and no. Yes and no. It's true that we certainly don't have unlimited resources. That's obviously true. We don't have the same resources that God has. God is the first giver, right? He's the uncaused cause, the non-receiving giver, if you will. He gives from what is his, not what he has received, right? That's God. We, on the other hand, are caused causes. We are receiving givers. We give only what we have been given, right? And what I'm getting at is that, yes, we are not divine, so we can't give exactly like God gives, but we can give similarly by following his example. So uh, in the Christian scriptures, it says in Ephesians, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave us himself, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So although we can't give technically exactly like God gives, we can imitate him by taking what he gives us, which is finite, which is limited, and following God's example of generosity in how we use it. And that's what we're going to explore here. So let's read our passage and find those three contradictions where the life lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 through 8. Paul writing to a church that he started trying to encourage them and um, keep them moving towards Jesus. He writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So, uh, last bit of background. We have said that generosity is a lifestyle of sharing freely what God's given to us. So the first apparent contradiction we see is this. We are asked to lose cheerfully. To lose cheerfully. And by this, I mean that to give like God is to give in a way that looks like losing. Now, you notice in this passage that the imagery that's used to communicate how to give is the image of a sower, right? So you have the sower, which is a farmer in the day. And the way they farmed back then was different from the way we do now. They literally often would have a sack or satchel of seed around their shoulders and would throw the seed out onto the soil, right? Not necessarily tractors or things like that. They're just throwing it by hand out there. And it's an image that looks like you're losing because at the end of the day, you started with a satchel full of seeds and now you've got nothing. You've got an empty bag. And this is how God gives to us. Giving from God's point of view is really a one-way street. He gives, we receive. And we can't really give anything back to him that he needs. In the same way, we can imitate God by giving more than we could ever expect to receive back or by giving to people who aren't able to give back. 
at least in a way that's obvious. Some examples, investing time and energy into a teenager. That may never take the time to say thank you, right? Maybe preparing a meal for a meal train for someone who's not going to be able to have you over for a meal themselves anytime soon. You know, uh, parents of infants, you get this. You may be acutely experiencing this in the middle of the night when you would really rather sleep, but your son or daughter needs you, and they're actually too young to even know how to smile. And we're told to do this cheerfully. And I think that cheerfully really gets this idea across really well, the word cheerfully. But if you look in the word cheerfully, it's interesting. Uh, It's the word... The, the word that's translated is hilaros. Does that sound like any other words you might know? Hilaros? Hilarious, right. That is the root word for our English word, hilarious. So it's like, it's like Paul is suggesting that we be laughing, rolling on our sides, tears coming down our face. Hilarious givers. As, as it looks like we're losing, we're laughing, enjoying, trying to catch our breath because it's so hilarious. It's so cheerful. Now, that sounds like a contradiction to me. The truth is that one of the things I really value in life <laughs> is winning. I like to win, I am very competitive. It was very difficult for me when we were first getting this church started 15 years ago because we were trying to get to know people. And one of the things we did, we had people in our house all the time, and often we would play games. And by George, we needed to play exactly by the rules, and I was going to make sure we did, and also I was going to grind my opponents into the ground. And one time, Becca... Uh, nicely said to me, you know, Brad, (laughs) when we're having people over to get to know them, winning the game of Parcheesi may not be our highest goal. We might, other things might be more important, like, I don't know, making them feel welcome and have a smile on their face when they go home. (laughs) But I like to win. I remember one time, um, I saw a really good example of this. This is years ago now. But I have a niece, uh, she just graduated from high school, uh, but she was eight at the time. And I was visiting over Christmas, and my dad was there too. And I watched my dad play a game of trouble with her. Do you guys know this game, Trouble? You remember it? It's got the dome in the middle of the sort of, I don't know if it's a hexagon or an octagon around. It's got this little board, and you push down on the bubble, and it pops the dice, and you get a number, and that's how many spaces you move. And it's called Trouble because if you have your little person, you have like, I don't know what they're called, a thing, piece. Your piece is behind someone else's piece, and you pop the bubble, and you get the same number as the number of spaces between you and the other person. You can go land on them and knock them off, right? That's why it's called trouble. So I watched my dad pop the bubble, and I would say, I don't know, three, four, five times. He would have exactly the number to knock my niece's piece off the board. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And every single time he would pick up another one of his pieces and move it those spaces. Now, you could look at that as my dad losing. But it's a generous move, and I don't think for a second he felt like he was losing. In fact, 
if I remember correctly, he was smiling. Maybe he wasn't rolling over on his side laughing. But there was a little bit of that hilaro in his experience. Verse 8 says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And the phrase I want to point out today is, having all that you need. Having all that you need, I think, is a perfect description of the concept contentment. Contentment is understanding that you already have all that you need, more than enough. And this is a key to being able to, I don't know, help your coworker or teammate or enemy shine, even if they shine brighter than you, and enjoy doing it because you already know that you have more than enough. And so as we go along, I'm going to point out these contradictions and ask you a question just to think about while I'm talking, but maybe through the week it'll pop up. My first question is this. Are you a more than enough person or a not enough person? Are you a more than enough person or a not enough person? And I would say that it is pretty much impossible to give like God in a way that looks like loss cheerfully if you're a not enough person, if you feel like you don't have enough, if you're not content. I have to admit something. I'm not super proud of this. But before my dad played my eight-year-old niece, I stomped her in trouble. (laughs) It's true. It's kind of funny. I'm not proud. But I'm a competitive person. And she lost, and actually she got really upset. And to be honest, looking back in that moment, I lost too. I wasn't better off in any way, because I beat my eight-year-old niece at trouble. In my life, I've had plenty of victories, playing board games, playing card games, playing trouble, I'm sure. I didn't need another one. And my dad understood that he wasn't really losing by helping build my niece's confidence. And we're not really losing when we invest generously in other people or important causes. You know, if our rival gets a promotion because we help them, we can be glad if we're content because we're so blessed and we see it. We already have more than enough. doesn't mean we don't try for a promotion, but it means we can be happy either way. But if we're out of touch with how much we have, how can we be happy for others? And if you catch yourself comparing yourself to other people, Or if you hear good news for someone else and it gives you a twinge of pain or anger or resentment, whatever, it's probably a sign that you're not in touch with how much you have in your life or how much God has provided for you. And let's not forget that the promise of this passage is that we don't ultimately lose either. Verse 6 says that we will reap generously. Verse 8 points out that God will bless the generous abundantly. It's just like agriculture. It may not be immediately obvious. You might find out years later that that teen you invested in is now a doctor or a teacher or a professor. Or someday you might learn that the meal train so impacted the person who received meals that they're now planning meal trains for other people. I don't know. Who knows? 
Or when your kid has their own kid and says, man, mom, pop, how did you do it? You'll know it wasn't in vain that you sacrificed your sleep and your sanity. But even in the times when we're waiting and wondering if we'll ever see a return on the investment of our generosity, we can still enjoy life. We can still be cheerful. We can still be hilarious if we realize we have more than enough. After all, the source of everything in this passage is God. And we can't, I guarantee we cannot give away more than he can pour into us. We'll always have more than enough. The second contradiction is in verse 7, where it says, Give. That doesn't mean it won't be lean times. But in the end, through the lens of redemption, God always comes through. The second apparent contradiction can be seen in verse 7, where it says, Give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So, if I'm understanding this, it means that we are commanded to give freely. You see the contradiction there? Give, not, re- give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. We're commanded, ordered to give freely. How can you order someone to do something freely? So far in this series, uh, we've gone to great lengths, I think, to understand God as a giver. God is also completely free to do whatever God wants. As God, he can't be forced to do anything, right? When he gives, he, he gives freely, right? So to reflect him, we have to give freely. So I think we need to understand something. So we've affirmed that we are created in God's image. That means we're created to respond to the world in a loving way, just as God does. Because God is generous, we're to be generous. We've covered that. The problem is that so many outside things act on us, our life experiences, uh, particularly in our sort of buying and, smell, buying and selling or this transactional culture we're a part of, that we lose touch with who we're created to be. So we don't always naturally get this, right? This is one of those things that uh, in our culture, it doesn't always seem so apparent to us or like second nature. So this is why there are commands in the Bible. The commands are there because there are things that don't feel natural because of our context that are the best thing for us, that we would never ever do unless someone told us to or commanded us to because they don't come naturally. So we're created to be givers, but it doesn't feel like it. We feel like we're losing. We feel like things are slipping away from us. But when we respond to the commands of God, then we actually find ourselves experiencing life the way that we were designed to experience it. You understand that? That's what the command does. It puts us in that position. So let me tell you a story. If you're an old-timer, you may have heard me tell this before, but um, who here plays golf? Anybody? A few people here and there. I've never played golf. I don't know. My family didn't play golf. Um, so I, the first time I played, uh, I went to, a, I played golf, I was like, I don't know, 30-something, right? 
And so the first time I swung a golf club, I swung it like a baseball bat. <laughs> but it doesn't work like that. It's not a baseball bat. It's completely different. I had trouble hitting the ball. Uh, and then I was rolling it, right? So I got some coaching. Uh, someone said, keep your head down. Don't stand up when you swing. And every once in a while, I was able to do what my coaches were commanding me to do. So I hit two or three shots well, all right, out of, I don't know, thousands. Who knows? But I'll tell you this. When I got it right, when things lined up and I swung the club the way that I was designed as a human being to swing the club, and I made certain contact with the ball, it was like energy flowing through my entire body. Have anyone played golf had that experience? And for the first time in my life, I understand why anyone would play golf. This seems so boring. But when you hit it perfectly or well, you get a charge. It feels great. It's invigorating. So hitting the golf ball the way I was designed to do felt great, but I learned something else. I learned the lesson, I'm calling it, of compensation versus potential. So what would happen was I played my first round of golf. And I was terrible, and that, that good strike almost never happened. And so if I had to hit the ball 50 yards, I would, I would grab the club that you need to hit it like 200. Because the ball's not barely going to go anywhere, so I need a bigger club to sort of compensate for my bad technique. So one time, I've got the, the wrong club, but I launched a beautiful shot. I mean... <laughs> It was like I got struck by nice lightning. When I hit that, I was like, Zzzz. I was like, oh, that was awesome, right? And you know what happened? The ball went way over the green and like into the, this little stream or something. I couldn't even, it was like, because I had the wrong club. I didn't know I had it in me. I didn't know I had that potential to hit the ball like that. And so that's the way I think we live life. We want to be able to grab any club and swing it any way we want at any time without any interference or someone telling us what we should do, and we think that is freedom. And we don't realize that this approach is just chaining us to mediocrity, or worse, bad golf. Let me say it again. We want to grab any club and swing it any way we want at any time without any interference or someone telling us what we should do, and we think that's freedom. But really what we're doing is we're tying ourselves to mediocrity at best. We think freedom is being able to do whatever we want, any way we want. But this, appro this approach just keeps us enslaved to second-rate, mediocre, subpar life. Freedom, I'm arguing, is the ability to be who you've been made to be and do what you were made to do without hindrance. Now, there might be obstacles like sand traps, water hazards, lost jobs, death of a spouse, illness, troubles for your kids, not getting along with friends, but you're able to make it past those because you know how to swing and you know what club to use. You know how to live. That's freedom. Commands can bring freedom. So let me ask you, this is our second question. 
is your way working? Think about that. If you want freedom, are you actually experiencing freedom? Doing it any which way you want to? Is it working? Is it bringing more peace, joy, hope to your life? Because if it's not, you're not free. You may think you're free because you're doing what you want, but you're actually tied to second rate, clamped to it with handcuffs. Miroslav Volf describes this dynamic in his book, Free of Charge. He com- and he does this by comparing life to a masterpiece of music. And he says, imagine your life is a piece of music, a Bach cello suite, or if you like something else, put it in there, Drake, whatever. You've heard it played by a virtuoso. You love it and would like to play it well. But try as you might, you fail. Not so much because you've had a bad teacher or haven't practiced enough, but because your left hand has a defect. You make music, but it's nothing like it's supposed to sound. Then you have surgery performed by a magician with a scalpel, and your hand heals. You return to your lessons with new vigor, and then one day you play the piece nearly perfectly. And full of joy, you exclaim, yes, I love it. This is the way the music of my life should sound. Constrained by the score, because you have to follow its notation, well, yes. But loving every moment of that constraint and not feeling it as a constraint at all because the very constraint is what makes for the beauty and delight. This is what it means to be commanded to be free. It's experiencing the music of life the way it should sound, constrained to the notes, but not feeling constrained at all. The third contradiction that we can see is verse 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Decided in your heart. So I think here... We're instructed to decide in our heart what to give. Now, what Paul is asking his readers to do here is to plan to give from the heart. Plan to give from the heart. And when Paul writes these instructions to the church at Corinth, what he's writing is not coming out of the blue. You know, there's this whole background surrounding his instruction. So the church in Jerusalem, they're having a hard time financially. There's a drought, um, and they're having trouble feeding their families. And as a result, Paul has been contacting the churches around the world to help take care of the Jerusalem church by giving to them. But Paul didn't want them to just spontaneously decide how to give when he arrived. So when he came to get the offering, he didn't want them to just spontaneously follow their hearts. He wanted them to pray, commit, and make a plan to give. He said, each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And he encourages them to make decisions in advance. And another place in the scripture, he's really specific, telling them to specifically set aside money on the first day of the week every week. Now, for a lot of us, this can sound like a contradiction, right? particularly in the area of giving. It can somehow seem less spiritual or less connected to the heart, 
to make a plan for giving instead of just giving when we feel emotionally moved. But nothing could be further from the truth. And many moons ago, uh, when Becca and I were dating, uh, one of the things I knew about her was her favorite color was blue. So I think we've been dating six months, and you know, when you're dating six months, you've you know, if it's going well, usually you kind of celebrate that, right? So I wanted it to be special. So I planned a blue date. So I wore a blue outfit. Uh, I got her blue flowers. I borrowed my friend's blue car. Uh, I borrowed, at the time, a CD of B.B. King playing the blues at Cook County Jail. We ate dinner at a restaurant called 180 Blue, which was part owned by Michael Jordan. We went to see the show. Can you see it coming? Blue Man Group, yes. So, uh, yeah, we went to Blue Man Group. What? It was different times. That's a lot of money for me. Anyway, what do you think Becca thought? You think she was like, man, this was all contrived. Where's the spontaneity? This guy must not be loving me from his heart if he planned all of this. Time to move on. Or, as I like to think she was thinking, wow, this guy really put his heart into planning this evening. Look at all the details he thought out. He must really love me. You see, the mind and the heart are not enemies. And when they team up, When we plan from the heart, great things happen. If we want to be generous people who give from the heart, we have to plan for it. It doesn't mean that if we're moved to give on a particular occasion that we can't. Of course not. But it means that we can build generosity into our lives, into our budgets, before many other things crowded out. The question for reflection here is, Do you have a plan? If you want to reflect who God is, if you want to get your sense of smell back or taste that you've lost because generosity isn't a real part of your life, do you have a plan? Do you think if you just float along and when you're moved and give, that that's what we're talking about, what the Bible's talking about, what Paul's talking about? It's not. If you try that approach, you won't be that generous. You won't give that much in the end. Not as much as you really want to. Look to the future. What will it take to live generously? What? what, Ask yourself, what will my budget look like? What will I have to sacrifice? What luxury can I do without? This is what putting your heart into something looks like. Planning. And in this way, our hearts and our heads work together to help us become who we want to be and who we're made to be, which is generous. So here's something I want you to think actually long and hard about. So you may have an inspiration this morning, but you may not. uh, But there's a question on there. It's talking about the transition year. So I mentioned this last week. 
What's typical is when a pastor moves on from the church to whatever the next thing is, and a new pastor comes in, and even more so if it's a founding pastor, is that giving dips, right? You probably expect that. Sometimes people take a wait-and-see type of attitude to the new pastor, and they want to see what's going to happen in the church. And the time when the church and the community that they love needs the most support, sometimes people pull back. Now, one thing that we have learned here is that a lot of the normal things that happen in other churches don't always happen here. In fact, difficult situations, if we look through our history, have been the things that have catalyzed us over the years. That is what I'm hoping and expecting for this transition in the area of generosity. I would say whatever you do, certainly don't pull back your generosity. This is the time when the church needs resources more than ever. But more than that, I would encourage you, and I'm hoping that you lean into this season, that wherever you are, you hear the call to raising the bar in your own life. Certainly because, and I think we see this, like 90% of this sermon is all about the benefit to reflecting the image of God in your life in this area, but also the benefit to the community that you love, which benefits you. So I want you to plan for this year. Some of you already do this, but some of you don't. You just sort of go with the flow. You need to plan. This is the time to lean in, not pull back. Do you have a plan? Do you know how much you're going to give? You can always give more. Some crazy happens. You can pull back. Do you have a plan? Have you thought it through? Do you know, and I mean, how much a month type of plan? How's it going to fit my budget type of plan? So the question that I'm leaving to you that you can't answer right now, but you can take home with you and ponder is this. This transition year, I will give blank a month. What? Because this could be an amazing time of growth in this community. Particularly if we all lean in together. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we worship this morning... By your spirit, you would give us an unusual sense and connection to how much blessing is in our lives. Help us to see it, for it to come to mind, for it to touch our hearts. That this would be a moment of understanding that we're blessed and we have more than enough. even if we tend to walk through a cloud of not enough existence, would you lift that cloud for a moment so that we could see how good you are to us, even if this is a tough time. Let us get a taste. Let it motivate us. Let it encourage us so that we can be cheerful. Not ignoring our problems, not burying our head in the sand, but understanding you are good. 
Amen.